morning as we gather together and we think about everything that's going on in life, we have to pause and sit back for a second and think about how do we live in view of God's mercy? How do we live a way that honors and reflects who He is and what He has done for us in our lives? In the first 11 chapters of Romans, we have seen many things, but I want to encourage you for right now, take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11, and I want to show you for just a moment the, one of the greatest hymns ever penned in Scripture. We think about everything that Paul has been sharing. We have seen Paul's heart in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and when we get to the end of chapter 11, we left off last week, we see this great hymn of praise. We see Paul crying out in glory and in majesty to everything that God has done. And when Paul thinks about everything that God has done for himself, what God has done for the people he has ministered to, to the people he has shared the good news of Jesus Christ with, he is overwhelmed by how he has seen God move. In Romans chapter 11, look with me starting in verse 33. 33 through 36 is this great hymn that Paul has written. And he says these words starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. We read these words as a believer. We read these words as a child of God. And as a believer, how are we to respond to what God has revealed to us in this great salvation? How do we respond to God's grace? How do we respond to God's mercy? This morning, we're going to understand how to respond as we get into chapter 12 of Romans. Chapter 12 of Romans is another transition in this letter that Paul has written to the church in Rome, both Jew and Gentile. But before we dive into chapter 12, think about everything that we have learned and unpacked over the first 11 chapters. I want to kind of give a review before we get into the meat of the message this morning. He has told us a couple of things, and these are reminders for us as we move forward today. He says that all human beings are sinners, and the wages of sin is death physically and spiritually. He unpacked that in the first three chapters. He also reminded us that all people can be made righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether looking forward or backward to the cross. We saw that in chapters 4 and 5. He shared with us that all believers can live a godly life because of our identity with Christ in his death and resurrection and because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
He also reminded us that all born-again believers have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, not only before the foundation for salvation, but also to live a godly life. Remember, we ended chapter 11 with this reminder that Israel is part of the plan that God has for his people. The salvation is for them. Salvation is ultimately for everyone. This morning, we're going to understand that, therefore, in view of God's marvelous mercy and grace that's clearly taught in these first 11 chapters, we are to discern the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, which is going to be outlined as we work through these chapters in the coming weeks. Now, chapters 1 through 11 tell us what God has done for the believer. That's the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, what God has done. Now Paul's going to show us what we need to be doing as a child of God. It's interesting that as you study Paul's letters, he always gets to this point where he concludes with a list of practical application, practical duties that we need to be following as believers that are based on doctrine. Because in the Christian life, doctrine and duty go together. They help us to determine what we believe, how we behave, and we understand what it means to be this child of God. But here's the challenge for us. We have to learn how to translate our learning this information to living out this information by showing that we daily live His Word, but also that we trust God in His Word. What you're going to see this morning is a concept known as relational theology. And what that means is that we are in a relationship with a holy father. And in your outline, I made this statement. If we have a right relationship to God, we will have a right relationship to the people who are a part of our lives. If my relationship with God is correct, my relationship with everybody else will be correct as well. But my relationships with other people are determined by my relationship with God. And did you catch the key word there this morning? Relationship. Not a list of do's and don'ts. But it's about a relationship with a holy Father who loves us. So this morning we're going to look at this idea, this concept of what it means to have a relation with Jesus Christ in two different areas. The first is our relationship to God. What does our relationship to God look like? Join me in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 and look what Paul says here. And these are his words. And remember he's been writing to his brethren, now he's writing to all believers, Jew and Gentile, when he says these words, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
If you're someone who underlines words or phrases in your Bible, this will be the fourth therefore we have read in this letter. This is the fourth therefore in Scripture in this particular letter. The first time we read the words therefore was back in Romans chapter 3 verse 20 where Paul said that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's declaring that the whole world is guilty before God. Then we get to Romans 5 1. He says therefore that therefore was the therefore of justification. We are now justified because of our acceptance of the free gift of salvation. In Romans 8, chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1, rather, is the third therefore. That therefore is of assurance. The assurance you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. When we get to Romans 12, 1, that fourth therefore is a therefore of dedication. You now are dedicating your relationship to God. And that's what he's going to break down in this section of scripture. What does it mean to be dedicated to a holy father? What does it mean to be dedicated to a God who loved you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins? There's three things that we need to learn about our relationship with God this morning. They're going to help us understand this dedication that we have to a holy Father, the first step is simply this. You give God your body. You give God your body. This idea of presenting your body to the Father as a living sacrifice. But this, these phrases that we read in verse 1, they're echoed back in chapter 6 of Romans. In Romans 6, verse 13, we read these words. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This idea of presenting ourselves to God completely. He said that in Romans 6, 13. But then a few verses down in Romans 6, verse 19, Paul makes this statement, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and of lawlessness leading to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. What Paul is saying in verse 1 is by giving your whole self to God. And we got to understand and we cannot pass what Paul is saying here. In the New King James translation, he starts verse 1 with, I beseech you. Other translations say, I urge you. I appeal to you. I plead with you. This is an authoritative and an urgent call to give ourselves to God, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And we who are alive in Christ are now called, look at this in verse 12, you and I are called a living sacrifice. Think about that phrase for a moment. We are a living sacrifice. Now, this is not an uncommon term in Scripture. Do you realize that in the Bible there are two living sacrifices? The first one is Isaac. The second one is Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles for a moment. Turn to Genesis 22. 
And I want to show you this first living sacrifice. In Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 5, we read these words. Genesis 22, starting in verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. Verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8. Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took his knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mouth of the Lord it shall provide. Isaac is a living sacrifice because he willingly put himself on the altar. Do you notice in that chapter in Genesis 22, there isn't a struggle between Abraham and Isaac. We see the question by Isaac. We got the wood, Dad. We got the fire. Where is the lamb? And Abraham knew that God would provide for him. Remember that Isaac was the son of the promise, the son of the birth of a nation. And Isaac willingly went there. Isaac was willingly bound. He was laid on the altar. And Isaac was going to die. He was going to die himself and was willingly going to yield himself to the will of God because of his father. Now notice when he got on that altar that God got Abraham's attention and saw his faith. And then we read in that passage that when he looked behind him, there was the ram he needed. There was the sacrifice needed for the glory of God. But we see Isaac as a living sacrifice because Abraham was willing to give him up completely to God. But the second living sacrifice, we know who that is. That's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who willingly went to the cross for our sins. He is the illustration of a living sacrifice because he died as a sacrifice in obedience to his Father, and he rose again. And today he's in heaven as a living sacrifice, bearing the wounds that he experienced at Calvary. He is now our high priest. He is our advocate before a holy Father, when you see in Scripture that word present, 
Verse 1, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That verb present means to give once and for all. It means complete and total surrender. So what does complete and total surrender look like? It's the difference between the chicken and the pig. You think about a chicken. You think about a pig. And now you think about what both of these two are going to contribute to an egg and bacon breakfast. Think about this for just a moment. Show the next picture for me. What is their contribution to this? Here's the contribution. The chicken actually makes a contribution. What does the chicken give to breakfast? The egg. The pig gives it all. The pig can't contribute part. The pig has to give all of himself for us to have bacon for breakfast. Here's the point. Too many times we would rather contribute things to God. We would rather give God an egg here or give God an egg here instead of giving everything we have to the Father. Because total surrender is what true worship looks like. And that's what Paul is telling us here. He's telling us that in order to truly worship God, it means full surrender. But notice in Scripture, Paul gives us two reasons for the commitment to true worship. He says it's the right response to God. Go back to verse 1. He says, by the mercies of God. It's for what God has done, everything that he has done on our behalf. That's the first reason for this total commitment to God. But the second reason, again, notice in verse 1. The latter part of verse 1, it says, which is your reasonable service? Other translations use the word rational. But if I'm going to be giving myself completely to God, giving him my body, giving him everything that I have, it's out of true worship for who he is. It's true worship for what he has done for me. That means that every day is a worship experience when your body is yielded to the Lord. When I give God everything, that is the truest act of worship that you can have. But too many times we give a part of ourselves for worship. We give it here, we give it there. We don't give complete surrender to the Father. So we have to give God our body, but you need to also give God your mind. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world. The world wants to control your mind. The world wants to tell you how to talk how to act, how to think. That is the world's desire. But as a child of God, we are to act different. We're to think different. We're to do things different. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Because where the world wants to conform us, we have a Father in heaven who wants to transform us us. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above 
where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You were just like them, is what Paul's saying here. But then look at the very next verse. But now, verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, dissident, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. This word we read about being transformed, it's the same word that we see as the transfiguration over Matthew 17, verse 2. It comes from the English word transform, comes from the English word metamorphosis. We know what metamorphosis is. If you took physical science, you know what that is. It's the change from inside out. It's a change from within. The world wants to change your mind. The world wants to pressure you to think its way. But the Holy Spirit comes into our life and changes our mind by releasing the power that is within us because we are a child of God. Here's how you can understand this better. If the world controls your thinking, you are you're a conformer. If the world controls your thinking, you're a conformer. If God controls your thinking, you're a transformer. Because you've been transformed by your thinking. God transforms our minds and makes us more spiritually minded by using His Word. When you and I spend time in God's Word, we memorize it, make it part of our life. God gradually makes your mind more spiritual because you're thinking about the things of God. You're not allowing your mind to be controlled by what's going on in the world around you. So you give God your mind. We give Him our body, but you also have to give God your will. Look at the latter part of verse 2. Because we're not going to be conformed to this world, but we'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Your mind controls your body and your will controls your mind. And the problem is many people think they can control their cells by this idea of willpower. Think about willpower for a second. How many of you have really great willpower? In other words, if I put a box of Krispy Kreme glazed donuts right off the hot rack, how good is your willpower? I don't know about you, but I'm weak. Listen, I am weak. I can pass a Krispy Kreme all day long without a problem with the hot signs on. 
I got to pray real hard. Because there have been times in my life, and I'm not afraid to confess this, there have been times in my life when I saw the hot sign on and I didn't even turn. Because there's no willpower. Because I'm trying to hold control, control things on my own. I'm not allowing God to control me. I'm not allowing God to lead me. I'm not allowing God to order my steps. But it's when we yield to God, we yield our will to God to let His power overcome us and gives us, gives us His willpower to handle the thing, to become victorious in our walk as believers. So we surrender our wills to God through disciplined prayer. How do you surrender your will to God? By spending time in prayer, praying to the Father that His will be done, not my will, not my desires, not my plans. Listen, the hardest thing you will ever pray, listen to me, church, the hardest thing you will ever pray is, Lord, let your will be done in anything. That is the hardest prayer to pray. Because of human nature, we want to tell God, I need this. I have to have this. I want this. When the reality is, when I pray, Father, your will be done, I am surrendering control of everything. I'm surrendering control of my will. Again, willpower. We want to control every circumstance of our lives. I'll give you another illustration. Some of you love to ride roller coasters. I do not like to ride roller coasters for two reasons. Number one, John y'all know that I'm too tall. I don't like being cramped. Number two, there's no brake pedal. I can't slow it down and speed it up like I want to. That's surrendering your will right there. But the problem is we want to control everything. But Paul says in here, we have to give everything to him. I can't just give my body and not my mind and not my will. I can't just give my mind not the other part. I have to give everything to Him because once I give everything to Him, I am transformed. I'm no longer being conformed to this world to think like this world, to act like this world because I've asked Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior and let God work in my life. I'm being transformed from the inside out, not the outside in. Too many times... We think we can change our outside appearance and now we're getting straight with God. But remember when Samuel went to look for the next king and he gets to Jesse's and tells Jesse, hey, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And he looks at that first son who's tall, strapping, and good looking. And Samuel says, that's got to be him. And God says, no. And God tells Samuel these words. I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. Because the heart is the center of everything. If I'm going to follow these first two verses in Romans chapter 12, it starts with me giving my heart to Jesus and let him change me. So in this idea of giving up willpower, that means that you and I, we must pray about everything and let God have his way in everything. Let pray about everything. Sometimes we think that, well, this is not a big deal, so I don't need to pray about it. We should be praying about everything. Too many times we only go to the Father when we got to pray about the big stuff. 
And we don't think the small stuff is worth its time. No, we pray about everything and yield ourselves to Him. That's the purpose of this transformation, of being transformed in ourselves and the renewing of our mind. It's to prove, and notice why we do this. Why do we submit everything that we are to God? Why do I give up my body, my mind, and my will? Look at the latter part of verse 2. And look what it says with you. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. This means that we will be able to recognize and appreciate what honors God because I've given him my body, I've given him my mind, I've given him my will. So I'm going to appreciate and honors God and it sets us up to obey his will. So this is the relationship between us and God. Or think about this relationship. How does it apply to other believers? What is our relationship to other believers? Look what we started in verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So we are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy. If proportion of our faith, of ministry, let us use it in our ministry. The teaching, and who teaches teaching, who exhorts exhortation, who gives, do so liberally. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinions. Remember, Paul is writing to a church in Rome. He's writing to people and he's talking about what their relationship should look like to each other. He uses the same picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 7 through 16. The basic idea here is that each believer is a living part of Christ's body and each one has a spiritual function to perform. Every one of you has been given a gift and that gift has been given to you not to keep to yourself but to build up the body and perfecting other members within the body. In short, we belong to each other. We minister to each other. We need each other. We can't be by ourselves on an island. We are the body of Christ. 
not the only one in Christ. So what does our relationship look like with other members, other believers? What does that look like? It starts with, what are the essentials to ministry? Here are the essentials, very quickly. First, honest evaluation. Honest evaluation. Every one of us needs to know what our spiritual gifts are and how we minister to the body of Christ. For some, that's easy to see. For others, it's hard. And now listen, it is not wrong for the believer to recognize his own spiritual gifts and how he lives with others. But it's wrong when we give a false evaluation of ourselves. And nothing will hurt the church more than we, when we overrate ourselves. In other words, we think we're better than we really are when it comes to our spiritual gifts. And we try to do ministries that we have no business trying to do because God hasn't given us that gift. And the opposite is true. Sometimes we'll take that gift God's given us and we undervalue it because we think we're not good enough to serve in the body of Christ because my gifts are not as unique or as, as important as this other person's gift. Again, look at verse 3 for a second. For I say through grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The gift that you have, that we have, came because of God's grace. The reason you have that gift is because God gave it to you. Now it's a gift that is being used in ministry, so it must be exercised by faith. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith, so we live and serve by grace through faith. Gifts are from God. We don't take credit for those gifts, and we use those gifts to glorify Him and Him alone. And the more we understand the grace of God, the easier it is to serve Him. But if you think your gift makes you more special than the person next to you, then you don't understand why God gave you that gift. So let me give you an example of what it means to have these gifts and use them for God. I came across this illustration I want to share with you. Now, mothers will appreciate this illustration more than dads. I'm just going to say it right now. Mothers, you're going to understand everything I'm fixing to say. But imagine, Mom, you got a letter from your son, and this is what the letter said. For mowing the lawn, a dollar. For washing the dishes, a dollar. For making the bed, a dollar. You owe me, Mother, three dollars. Now, if I ever said that to my mom, I know what happened to me. But this boy has the audacity to write his mama this letter and this list. Now, I remind you that this is work-based uh, service. This is what work-based service looks like. We try to work for ourselves to earn our salvation and earn grace from God. Now, imagine the son writes this letter. A dollar for this, a dollar for that, a dollar for this. Mommy, you owe me three dollars. Now, imagine the letter that mama writes. For being in labor for 16 hours, no charge. For staying up with you all night while you were sick, no charge. 
for buying your clothes and food, no charge. That is grace-based service. That is grace. Listen, mamas could write us a list of things we owe them because of all they do. But mamas do what they do because of the love they have for their children. And their children reciprocate that. For you and I to use these gifts we have, we don't take these gifts and we don't say, listen, this is what I do, this is what I do well, this is what I'm owed and what I'm due. No, you take the gift God has given you and you find out and you pray, God, where can I serve in the church? That is honest evaluation. How can this gift benefit the church? How does it benefit the life of the church? How does it help me grow in my walk with you? That is honest evaluation. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. As it says in verse 3. But then there's a next step. It's faithful cooperation. It's faithful cooperation. Every believer has a different gift. And God has given those gifts to be used in the local body of the church. To help the church grow in a balanced way. So every Christian exercises their gift through faith. But here's the thing. Sometimes we don't see a result of this gift in ministry. But God sees it and God blesses it. Notice what it says here in Scripture between verses 4 and 8. He says, if you have these gifts, use them. He doesn't say hold on to them. He doesn't say just put them to the side. Look what he says here. He says in verse 6, listen, having the different gifts according to the graces given, let us use them. If prophecy, prophesy in proportion of faith with ministry, then use it for ministry. If you teach in teaching, exhort exhortation, give with liberally. He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Exhortation, that is encouragement. That is a spiritual ministry that is just as important as preaching and teaching. Listen, some of you have a gift of encouraging others. Some of you have a gift of helping others. Some of you have a gift of praying and showing mercy. Use those gifts because they are important. Whatever gift you have is dedicated. It must be dedicated to God for His use. For the good of the whole church. God doesn't give you a gift to put in your pocket and save it for a rainy day. He uses it for His glory and for His working. But again, here's a danger. What happens when we overemphasize the gift? Scripture asks the question over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul makes the statement, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is no, we all do not have the same gifts. Some of you have the gift of singing and you're not using it. Some of you have the gift of teaching and you're not using it. Some of you have a gift of hospitality and you're not using it. You're holding it to yourself and saying, you know what? I'll use it if I need to. That's not what Scripture tells us. As a Christian, we use these gifts that have been given to us to manifest the glory of God. We use these gifts to build, not toys to play with or weapons to fight with. The church in Corinth were tearing each other down 
because of the ministry gifts they thought they had. They thought this gift was more important than this gift. That this gift should be used and this gift should not be used. Again, looking at that passage where he asked, is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a teacher? Imagine this for just a moment. If the church was made up of nothing but Sunday school teachers, nothing else would happen in church. All they would do is teach scripture. There would be nothing else taking place. But everyone has a unique gift. You may not know what that gift is. And I would encourage you, come back tonight. Tonight we're wrapping up the series on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at these gifts specifically. So you can see what they are and how they're to be used within the body of Christ. But here's another thought as we move through this. It's loving participation. It's loving participation. We do this out of love. We do this out of kindness. We do this out of the grace that God has given us in using these gifts. Look at me in verse 9. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing in the spirit, in prayer, to the needs of the given the hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, rejoice with those who rejoice, and we with those who be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Paul is emphasizing our attitudes in the way we exercise our spiritual gifts. It is possible to use your spiritual gift in an unspiritual way. It is possible, think about that, it is possible to use the spiritual gift God has given you in an unspiritual way. So we learn to love completely. We learn to love in a way that is honest, not hypocritical. We learn to be humble, not proud. We learn how to put others ahead of ourselves and treating others more important than ourselves. When you and I are serving Christ, it means the devil's not happy and there are going to be days of <clears throat> discouragement. When you're serving Christ completely and holy, the devil's going to get in the way and people are going to try to discourage you. It's a fact. But we do this out of love. We do this out of our commitment because of our zeal, a spiritual zeal we have in serving the Lord. But notice Romans 12, 12. It says rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, continually, steadfastly in prayer. When life becomes difficult, the Christian cannot permit his or her zeal to grow cold. When you're going through hard times, you can't lose that zeal for God. You can't allow yourself to be cold spirits when things get rough. Again, verse 12, you rejoice in hope. You rejoice in the good. You're patient in the trials. 
and you're steadfast in your prayers. But then Paul reminds us in closing out this little section about how we should feel for others. Christian fellowship, listen very carefully, Christian fellowship is more than a pat on the back. Christian fellowship is more than a, hand, a pat on the back or a handshake. Christian fellowship is sharing the burdens and blessings of others. Because if a Christian cannot get along with one another, how are they going to face their enemy? How can we have a humble attitude to share the marks of a believer if we're not humble ourselves? I'm thankful that Jesus came and ministered to the common person. He didn't come to the special person, the person of status. He came to the lowly of the lowliest, lowliest and they heard him gladly. Because God speaks to every one of us. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep. Weep with those who are weeping. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And we weep with those who weep. What Paul gives us in these 16 verses is a portrait of service. But I want to remind you in closing this morning that in these 16 verses, we see a portrait of Jesus. Let me explain. Jesus did the following. Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice dedicated to the Father's will. Jesus gave himself for the church. Jesus loved with a genuine love with words, with actions, not with religious pretense. Jesus hated what is evil, loved what is good, and died for evil people to make them good. Jesus loved brothers and sisters with a brotherly affection as revealed in the gospel. Jesus was dishonored so that we may be honored. Jesus was a man of zeal. He took up the song that says, the zeal of God, the house will consume me. Jesus rejoiced in hope. He endured tribulation. It was constant prayer. Jesus was generous. He became poor that we might be rich in him. Jesus has shown us hospitality. He's a friend of sinners and dies for us and welcomes us. Jesus loved his enemies. He did not have a sword in his hand, but nails in his hands and said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoiced, and he wept with those who wept. And Jesus unites every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And here's the best part. Jesus associates with the lowly. And he even took a repentant the paradise with him and associates with you and with me. As the body of Christ, as members of the church, by the mercies of God, we offer ourselves to God and to one another for the good of the church and the glory of who God truly is. But hear me very carefully. In order to do what these verses say, verses 1 through 16 of Romans chapter 12, it starts with this. You have to be willing to surrender all to Him. Every head bowed in your right close. This morning, we have looked at everything it takes and required us to surrender to Him. It starts with ourselves. 
starts with our body, with our mind, and our will. That's our relationship with God. But then we've also looked at what this relationship looks like with other people. How we participate. How we are concerned. How we are in faithful cooperation. But it starts with evaluating ourselves. And if I'm not completely surrendered to God, I cannot help others in the church. So it means I surrender all to Him. It doesn't mean I just contribute. I give everything to the Father because of what He's done in sending the Son to die for my sins. So the question is this. Have you surrendered all to Him? Are, only, are, are you only making a contribution? Are, only, are you only giving some here and some there? Scripture says that He requires all. This morning, it may be surrendering all to Him. It may be praying where you are right now in your pew. It may be coming forward to the altar to pray. But whatever it takes, you must be willing to surrender all to Him before you can move forward in using the gifts He's given you for His kingdom. Father, as we move into a time of invitation, a time of response, the prayer is simply this, that you would move in a way where it's your presence. Father, as we come to this time of invitation, the prayer is simply this, that your will be done. Not our desires, not our hopes, not our wants. But Father, your will be done. We're going to give you the glory in all things. So we pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen. Let's all stand.